0: Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, to set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, we come to you now needing you to help us, needing you to speak into our hearts and our lives. Coming, We come today, every one of us has our own anxieties and worries and things that have contributed to our own weariness in our souls this week, and, and we need fresh breath and air and life from your Spirit. So we pray that you would take these words that were written a couple of millennia ago And show us that that they mean something to us now. And show us that it points to truth that we can cling to. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Titus together. It's a little tiny book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Titus. If you, We also have these journaling Bibles that we bought that are available to you. They're back on the book table. If you want to grab one, you can get up right now and grab one. Um, they are, it's our gift to you. Um, it'll also be on the screens for you. And as we've, we're looking at Titus in the month of August, we're looking at the question of what is a church? And, and this ter- includes some, uh, the question for us of, of who are we and how does this matter and how do we fit into this? And so that's the question we come to today, is who are we, who are you? What is, what is, what is your life? meant for? What is the purpose that you were made for? These are questions that are the big questions of our lives, of our identity, our purpose, the thing that makes, that gets us up in the morning, the thing that we're shooting for. Is there a sense of transcendence on Monday morning, or is it just the grind of another day? Um, Disney's movie Soul took this on recently, and and poked a little bit at the idea that everyone has one passion and one purpose, instead saying that there are moments that spark our interest and passions and to make the most out of enjoying the lives that we live here. And, but in this, there is really no bigger theme right now around us in movies and in media and entertainment and shows we watch than the idea of self-discovery. It's everywhere, to the point where it starts to get boring in plot lines, where you're like, oh, this is just another movie for how someone is going to, to realize that there's something within themselves, and if they just unlock that one thing, then it's going to lead to true freedom and life. And that is the one story arc that seems everywhere all the time. But, it's, it, 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 but within that, I think for us... If you go down that path and spend your life and spend time in, in self introspection and trying to find that one purpose and that one thing within your life you 'll realize that eventually that gets tiring and it, because it comes up empty in the end and so today we 're going to try to see and ask this question what is how, what is our story? How does it fit into the story around us? Is there a big story? Because biblically, Scripture tells us that there is a big story, there is a big narrative, and that our lives play into that, that we are, our lives are like threads woven into a bigger tapestry, that do, that, and there is a bigger purpose, there is a sense of transcendence, and, and so it helps us to make sense of the world around us and our own lives in the midst of it. It tells us about a God who created us as an overflow of His love, and pursues us and redeems us for our good and His glory. And so today's passage in Titus tells us the root of our story for all those who follow Christ, and it's the message that we proclaim, the story of who we are. That's what we call the gospel. It's the best news in the world, is the gospel means good news. And so in Titus, this is what we've seen so far. It's a short little book. It's three chapters. In week one, we saw that this, so this is written by Paul, the Apostle, and he sent this young pastor, Titus, to the island of Crete. And he sent him there to help continue what had been started, because the good news of Jesus had been preached there, and people had become Christians, but the churches were a mess. So he said, Titus, I'm sending you there to put everything into order. And in week one, in chapter one, we saw that the church of Jesus Christ is the hope that God has given this world for eternity. And so as as a church, that's something that we need to realize is that there is a distinct place for the church, for God's people in this world. In week two, we saw that last week that the church is God's family. And so we gather together centered on worshiping Jesus and and understanding the gospel more deeply so that that gospel then will shape us into a family who reflects Jesus more clearly. And so we saw last week that everybody has a place in what God is doing in his church. And this week, as we, as we look, we see that this same gospel that centers our worship and shapes us as a family drives the way that we live and drives our lives personally and corporately together. And so we'll really see this in the next two weeks to this week. Well, next week is our 10th anniversary. When we come back on the 29th, Lord willing, we'll continue on with Titus chapter 3 and see that that our lives matter and the way we live matters, that it isn't just heady theology, but we'll see this in two parts, that the, it's the, about the message we proclaim and the work we're empowered to do. And so this is what we read in Titus chapter 2. Now, in Titus chapter 2, is, if you remember, that it had, it, Paul had told this young pastor in verse 1, "'As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine.'" And we saw last week that what accords with sound doctrine has implications personally for everyone in the church. So that he goes on to say, teach older men to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and older women likewise to be reverent in their behavior. Instructions for young women and young men and for bond servants. And so in all of this subsection of chapter 2, Paul says this is what it looks like to teach people what accords with sound doctrine in their lives. And now we get the reason. Why does it matter that the church teaches sound doctrine for people's lives. And that brings us to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is, again, this section in chapter 2, what Paul is telling Titus is... As for you, there's people stirring up division in the church and arguing about different religious issues. And, and so he says, you know, you need to appoint elders in the churches so that you have other people that, that can teach and lead people in what accords with sound doctrine. But, but all this division being stirred up, but Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is what it looks like in people's lives for older men and older women and younger women and, and, and younger men. And, and so this is what it looks like in the church. But why do we do that? Well, the word for tells us this is the explanation. For the grace of God has appeared. Here is the foundation, Titus. And what we have packed into these four or five verses is a dense, compact announcement of the good news of the gospel. It's incredible what gets accomplished here. And so it ends with four commands. Do you see that? The chapter ends with, Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And and so this is, the chapter begins by saying, Timothy, this is what you're to teach. And so then it emphasizes the teaching with four different commands. That means that this is something we ought to pay attention to. If, if I mean, young Titus, not Timothy. So if young Titus is being told these things, to declare these things with boldness, to exhort people and to call them to godliness in their lives, to rebuke ungodliness with all authority and not be disregarded, this brings the ethical teachings of the church grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and a realization that in this passage, what it shows us is that we are currently situated between two appearings. Do you see that in the text? In verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. And then we wait in verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is that we see our story captured in just a few verses of scripture. And what we're going to look at today is our past, our present, and our future. Because they're all here for us. It shows us how the story of what God has done, especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ, reshapes our identity around the story that he is writing. So again, internally within the church, we saw that the church is God's family and it impacts, the gospel impacts our personal ethics and the family life of the church, while externally we are called to good work that we're gonna look at especially when we get into chapter three next, and so hang on for that as well. But here's this beautiful, dense little reminder of our story, our past, our present, and our future, because the church is called to declare good news. So these are the three parts we've seen so far. The church is God's hope for eternity. The church is God's family, and the church is called to declare good news. So our past first is that God's grace has appeared. Now this word, appeared, The root word appears twice in our passage. The grace of God has appeared, and we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God. And so God's grace has appeared in the past, God's glory is coming in the future, and then we're in between those two. The word here is, is the perfect tense in the Greek, which means that this is a past action that has ongoing implications. And so this is the same tense that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. He's saying, it has been accomplished, that death is defeated, and, and that it, what the work of our salvation was finished on the cross, and that one moment in the past was a moment that has ongoing implications for us. And so that's the connotation of what's being said here is, God's grace has appeared. It happened. There is a history that we hold to in Christianity that, that there are ongoing implications of what has happened. And so this root this word of, of, what, of appearing means that something that was invisible or clouded or foggy or fuzzy or uh, undiscernible has now been made clear. It's come into view. And so we might think of this as saying like, like the sun is, has risen and we've come to a point where all of a sudden the darkness of night has been exposed in the new day. And so that's what's being said here is that God's grace has appeared. And how has it appeared? Well, it has appeared bringing salvation for all people and then training us. And so it goes on into the present. We'll get there. And, and this gets broken down later on, and so this, it captures it in verse 14. It, it appeared, and how did salvation come to all people? Well, it came in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so that means that there are three actions listed here that Jesus accomplished as the one who saved us, that when God's grace appeared for us, it came because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and purify us for his own possession. So grace has appeared. Maybe we should take a minute to talk about what grace is. I don't know if we always understand the concept of grace. Now maybe like if you grew up in a a Christian family, maybe you use language like, we need to say grace before a meal. And so it might be like an expression of a prayer. Um, it, it, and I think when we hear about grace, it, it's something that maybe you know somebody named grace, and you don't, but, but understanding the concept of grace and how it's used biblically is important for us. I think we get confused sometimes with mercy. So mercy is not receiving punishment we deserve. When someone has mercy on us, it's them not giving us something we've earned. And so this is, you know, when you were a kid, if you got caught doing something you're not supposed to do, and your parent didn't give you the punishment and consequence that you knew you deserved, that is a a form of mercy. And so we can think about mercy, that there are things that we do in our lives that bring a consequence that God doesn't always give us the fullness of the consequence for our actions. In Christ, God's mercy has been extended to us because the punishment we deserve for our own rebellion and sin was absorbed by Jesus, and so we don't get the punishment we deserve if we follow Christ. But it's not just about mercy and punishment. The, the, here, the emphasis is God's grace, and grace is being given something that we haven't earned. And so this is, there are no, it's not that that it, we cannot earn our way into God's favor. We cannot earn our way into salvation. There is nothing we can do to, to get to a point where we have been, holy enough. We miss the mark in our lives, and, and as we hear in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is exempt from that. And so God, in giving us any opportunity for a restored relationship with him, for an opportunity to be written into the story he is writing in this world where the story of scripture is not just about condemnation and punishment. The story of scripture is that our creator God is renewing and restoring all things to his glory. And now in Jesus, we get to be a part of that restoration. And so the mercy of God is that we don't get the punishment we deserve if we follow Jesus, but the grace of God is that it's not just that we're not punished, it's that we are given a a share of the inheritance of the kingdom of light. And so we see this like in the prodigal son story. That when the son returns home after after telling his dad like i basically wish you were dead and i want you to you know i I wish that you know and he goes away and he he spends off his inheritance he demands his inheritance early spends it all off loses all the money ends up waking up in, in in a pig sty and wanting to eat the pig's food which for a jewish man was the lowest of the low point he could reach and so he's longing for the pig slop and to eat the pods that the pigs were fed and that's when he gets to a point where he's like all right here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and ask my dad if I can be one of his servants because my dad's servants live better than this. So he works out his his idea of how he's going to approach his dad and ask for his mercy, saying, I don't want the punishment that I've earned on this. Can I just be a servant in your household? But when he got home, what happened? A lot of you know this story, even if you didn't grow up in church. It says that his father saw him from a long way off and ran to him and fell on his neck and brought him in and put his best robe on him and put a ring on his finger and he killed the fattened calf and called everyone in for a celebration because his son was lost but had returned home that's the grace of a father that is it's not just the mercy of not giving us what we've earned in punishment but welcoming us in as his children so the grace of God has appeared, and it appeared in Jesus Christ. There is one way. When Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for his disciples, and, they said, and he said, and you know the way, Tom, and Thomas spoke up and said, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. And, and Jesus' response was, yes, you do know the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's been made clear for us that the witness of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is our hope. And that in him, God's grace has been made clear for the entire world. And so, how did that happen? Three actions that are listed in our passage. He gave himself for us. This is the incredible reality of the gospel, is that that our salvation is not contingent primarily on us. I think that's hard for us to stomach. Because we are told, and it is drilled into us, that our identity and our story and our fulfillment are all things that are contingent on our own self-discovery and our own, on our own action that we can go and achieve those things and unlock those things within us. And what we're told in the gospel is that we are hopeless on our own and Christ had to come and give himself for us. God took on flesh and became human to give this to us and he went to his death in our place for our sin because there is nothing we can do to earn this. But what is God's grace for us? That Jesus gave himself up for us. The second action that we, that we just, just saw is that he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, this is amazing. Redemption means that we were purchased from our bondage and slavery to sin, that he paid the cost to purchase us out of it. And that we're redeemed from lawlessness means that on our own, every one of us is lawless. Now I, I think most, again, most of us are like, I don't know about that one. I try to do my best. I think when we look at our country right now, we can see lawlessness abounding. And, and, and here, our standard is not looking at other people around us and deciding if we are less lawless than the people around us. The standard that we have is God's holiness. We have the law of the Old Covenant that is, that is being referred to here, that it, in the New Testament when it's referring to lawlessness, that's what it's looking back at, is did we fulfill God's law for us? Did we fulfill what God put out and said to his people, this is what it looks like to be my people and to follow me? Do you know how many commandments there are in the Old Covenant? 613 makes me want to scream too. <laughs> 613 commandments. How how you doing on picking those up? <laughs> I mean, hopefully right now, I think most of you, if you're honest, are going like, 613? Like, we're, <laughs> I know about 10. Can you name the 10? There are 10 commandments that get a lot of the press because we can't handle 613 commandments. We can't remember what's happening on Tuesday. Ten commandments, though, that are given to us. And so I want you internally, I think back in my youth ministry days, I would make everybody actually physically stand up, but I'm going to let you do this in in your own heart today. I want you to hear these and tell me how you're doing with the ten commandments that God gives to his people. You know, in the Old Covenant, just real briefly, before people get, like, if if you're the theologians in the room, I understand there's a difference between the ceremonial law, the moral law, and the civil law of the people of God in Israel. And so the, the civil law of the nation and how it was to be governed, that was fulfilled in Christ, the ultimate king. So we aren't bound to the civil law now living in the United States of America in 2021. The ceremonial law of our cleanliness was fulfilled in Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. But the moral law of what it means to live as God's people has has been extended in Christ and actually made harder to expose our inability to come to God and show us that we need to be redeemed from lawlessness. And so the Ten Commandments are still an important thing for us to consider and think through. So these 10, just think in your head if you have like a mental hand raised and and, and tell me when your hand goes down. First, you shall have no other gods before me. That means that our affections and our worship and our hearts don't chase after anything before God. Second, you shall make no images of God. Third, you shall never use the Lord's name in vain. That means you don't refer to God and call on him in empty and selfish ways. Fourth, that you will remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Fifth, that you will honor your father and your mother. Sixth, that you will not murder. Seventh, do not commit adultery. Eighth, don't steal. Ninth, don't bear false testimony, don't lie. And tenth, don't covet. None of us makes it past number one. Every one of us has things that our heart chases after before God. And then when we look at these, in case we think that we're going to weasel our way out, most of these ten are about external actions. The tenth one, we can't get around, right? That's internal motivation. If you've ever wanted or been jealous over anybody else's thing, and it goes on to like house or wife or mule, like anything that you've ever coveted. And so that one gets us at a heart level, but Jesus extends these when he, in his sermon on the mountain says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but if you've hated someone or called someone an, an idiot, you have committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but if you've looked at someone lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus takes the external actions and turns them inward on our hearts to show us the depth of our own lawlessness that every one of us fights and tries to justify all the time. And the, the struggle that we have is that the things that are, and this isn't original to me that it has been observed by many theologians, that the things that our hearts desire, our minds will justify, and then our wills will pursue. And so it, it really it comes down to our heart desires that we will find a way to excuse anything we want in our lives. It, because we are in our nature lawless, but what the hope we have is that God's grace has appeared and redeemed us from that lawlessness. That's why God's grace had to appear. But this is the beauty of redemption, is that on our own, we are in bondage and slavery to our own lawlessness and sin and under the curse of lawlessness and sin. But Jesus' death paid the price to free us from lawlessness and sin and free us from our bondage to the law and free us to live. And then it didn't stop there. He purified a people for himself, for his own possession. This is our expiation, that we are washed clean of our sin. And these are the side effects of God's work, that he is renewing and restoring all things and redeeming us from the curse of sin. And so in that, he washes us clean and makes us holy and pure. And it's it's both positional and progressive, that you are called, if you follow Jesus, you are part of the holy ones of God's own possession but also that it's progressive, that it's something that grows over time. This is like, honestly, this is what it is to, for instance, if you you get married. So Alyssa and I in May celebrated 20 years married together. And you should celebrate because she is here and she has endured being married to me for 20 years. Two decades. Now, when we stood on our wedding day in 2001, we made vows to each other. We made promises to each other, and the kinds of promises that you hear in weddings are that it's for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. Now, that's a promise that you make on your wedding day, and positionally, you are married. You become a couple. The two become one flesh in biblical language, but you don't fulfill that vow until the last day that you're married and until death actually parts you. And so how do we know that our marriage was successful is it's one day at a time. It is daily giving up ourselves to each other in self-sacrificial love, whether richer or poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and health until death parts us. And so it's positional and progressive. And so that's true of our sanctification. And all of this shows that we, that we get caught up in these questions of self-discovery, looking inward to figure out who we are, but what we need to see is that our story is part of what God is doing, what he has done, what he has written from the, before the foundations of the earth. And that the question that we need to ask primarily is less about who we are and more about whose we are. That if we belong to God, redeemed by Christ, then our past is that God's grace has appeared. That brings us to our present. Our present is that we are waiting and working. And so this is what we see, that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And God's grace then is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our God and Savior. And so our present is that we're waiting and working. Now, this is, again, saying there are two appearings here. God's grace has appeared in the incarnation, and when Jesus came and lived and died and was raised and ascended. And now we are waiting in this interim for his return as the glory of God will appear at his return. This is what we saw as we studied the book of Revelation at the first half of this year, if you were with our church this year is that we are living in the last days between Jesus' ascension and his return. And so Revelation is a book given to us to help us to understand and have hope for what it means to live in anticipation of that. But as we live in anticipation, and what, what this tells us, we're waiting for something. That the promises of God, that we are living in the gap between the promises of God and, and their fulfillment, because our reality doesn't measure up to them right now. When we see in Revelation 21 that there will be no sickness, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that is not our current reality. But that's the hope that we look ahead to. We look back and say, God's grace has appeared and it's been secured in Jesus. We have hope of glory, but what do we do now while we wait and we work? Our life is a training program for eternity. Salvation has come for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Romans chapter 5 captures this as well. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is saying theological foundation, God's grace has appeared, declaring us righteous in Jesus. Jesus. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so this is, again, looking at, okay, in our past, we've been given access by faith into God's grace. It has appeared in Jesus. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we rejoice in our future and what we look ahead to. But what do we do now? Well, verse 3 of Romans 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is our present, is that in Christ we can rejoice even in our suffering knowing that everything we experience now is in the language of Titus chapter two, that it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means that that godliness trains us to look at the things our hearts desires when we look at the world around us and at the people around us and the things that they're pursuing and finding some glimmer of relief from the suffering of this world and escape through these things, that we're able to look at the things that are outside of God's best for us and say that we don't need that in our lives because Jesus is enough, and so what does your heart set on? What makes you happy? What brings you into despair and sorrow? This world's pursuits and everything that it has to offer are, are, are most easily available to you by leaving what God has called you toward. And discipleship, following Jesus, is costly. That it's we're we're called to live self-controlled lives upright and godly, waiting and anticipating God's glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived this, but he also wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The call that Jesus puts out is, if anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross daily to follow me. If you lose your life, you'll find it. What is it worth it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? And part of this works itself out that as we are being trained in godliness and and waiting for the appearing of Christ to return, then what are we called to? Well, he has redeemed us and purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It means that while we're here, we will do everything we can to contribute to the good work God does in this world that he created. And we're going to really dig into this again in the next passage. So stick with us for chapter 3, where we'll really look at that we are empowered to good work as God's people. But in this, we need to see that the gospel is not just fire insurance, I think we, that, that too often we can look at things that way and, and we look at the past and we might that if we cut out the center point of this text and our present, so if we only look at our past and our future, then this is what it becomes. It becomes, do you want your get out of hell, hell free card? Like, do you want that? Do you want to be able to say, you know, if you, if you say the right words, like a mantra, then you will get this, this pass out of hell in eternity and eternity and who wouldn't sign up for that? Right? If it has no impact on our lives now, like I can just say, the, say these words and raise my hand and I'm go- going to then be able to live my life however I want, but I know that I'll be in heaven. What we miss is that, that if, if that is our past, if you really do believe that you were created in God's image and likeness and our only hope for redemption, our only hope for restoration is the grace of God that's appeared in Jesus Christ and that the cost of our salvation was the death of the only perfect human whoever lived, that he raised to life for you and ascended to heaven where he now rules and reigns over all things, Do you, don't you think that'll have implications for how we live now? Don't you think that'll make an impact that, that when we're called sojourners and exiles by Peter in first Peter, that, that we've been saved by Jesus, so right now we live in a place, this isn't our ultimate home, but while we're here, we've got a calling to, in, in how we live. He uses language from Jeremiah when God's people Israel were in exile in Babylon, and Jeremiah wrote to them and said, hey, invest yourselves into this place. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and cultivate them. Celebrate marriages and children. Have your sons and daughters get married and have children and grandchildren, and and seek the good of this city where I have sent you, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The language there is shalom, and it's in its wholeness and healing and good you will find good as well. And so God's people have always been called to seek the shalom of this world in the midst of the brokenness to be agents of light and darkness and so our present is yes we're waiting for the appearing of jesus and we are working to do everything we can to bring for the good of all people and to the glory of god and the gospel is not just a matter of our personal eternity it's about life here and now and about a bigger story. But we also need to see that Jesus meets us right here where we are, and he meets our needs in here and now and, and calls us to give ourselves fully to him. He's very clear that a tree will be known by its fruit. Redemption Hill, at this church, we're, we are convictionally bound to this, the idea that our, the gospel works itself out in our lives. And so in our statement of faith, and again, we'll bring this up again in a couple of weeks, It says, We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. And in obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing to the gospel in word and deed. So listen, church, there are all kinds of debates, worldly debates and worldly systems with worldly ends that we could be caught up in. But we need to understand that that worldly solutions will not lead us out of the problems that they created. Again, we'll look more deeply at this in chapter 3. But if you're a Christian, you know that we're in the interim. We're living in the already and the not yet, that Christ has already defeated death and given us salvation, but we aren't yet experiencing the fullness of his glory. We're already saved, but we're not yet in the fullness of Christ's presence. We're living it out in a broken world, doing all we can for others' good and for God's glory. So third then, our future. So our past, God's grace has appeared. Our present is waiting and working. Our future is blessed hope. This is what we read in verse 13. We are waiting for the, in the present age, we are waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we live in. And this is something that I think also, and we, saw, we talked about this a lot in our series in Revelation at the beginning of this year. I never hear complex eschatological debates from people who are in the midst of real sorrow and suffering. To say that another way, eschatological is a multi-syllable word that is not used in everyday language. You probably didn't drop that one in like a work email this week. (laughs) I'd like to talk about the eschatological implications of this project we're on. Probably not. Eschatological just means the study of last things. In our context, in, in the history of the American church, particularly the white evangelical American church, eschatology has become something terribly divisive, and people have taken ideas of last things and turned that into a way to conspiracy theory watch present headlines. Rather than get to the root of what was given to us, that this is a hope for eternity for those who are suffering terribly. But in my experience, in people that are suffering, Christians who are suffering, like really suffering there is a, a more beautiful view of jesus in his return that typically escapes those who are more comfortable and so that shapes real when people are really coming to god in lament and in suffering and able to turn to god with all their sorrow but they know that they don't have hope on their own they know that we that they know that we all have enemies and that our enemies are real and our enemies want us dead that our, that we should that we should be dead and could be over and over again but god is good to us And his grace has shown up for us in Jesus, and his grace and glory will show up at the return of Jesus. And so in suffering, we can come to a point where we actually see with more clarity that our lives now are about so much more than what happens in the limited time we have here and and when we are breathing on this earth, but we look ahead to eternity when the real story begins. And if we could just believe that, church, if we could just grasp that and have a view of eternity that is bigger than the moment... in front of us this week and this month and this year, then it would change everything for us. Because the agonies and sorrows we experience will be put in their proper place. The joys we experience would take their proper place. But we don't often think about eternity. We don't often enough cling to that hope. And so what happens is we, if we just live as Christians in past and present then you might believe what Jesus has done for you. You might be working hard right now and trying to live the gospel out, but you're running out of steam over and over and over again because you don't have a view of what this is headed toward and that what we are headed toward is more fixed and more sure than anything we experience here and now. now. Listen, I had two funerals this week. I'd like to not have a week like this next week. And they were hard. And I read places like Ecclesiastes 7 where it says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad and the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I read that in Ecclesiastes, and I say, okay, I can understand biblically why that's being said, but, but on a week like this, I, it, it's too much. If you're a member of Redemption Hill, you saw the message that went out this week about a family whose funeral I did for their baby that was lost, that we did the, the service on Monday. And so we sent out the notes to, so that hopefully you could be pointed toward hope as well. The other was this week, for my cousin, and these were two difficult funerals. Both funerals reference, and we, we came to C.S. Lewis's last battle. And he wrote this in his Chronicles of Narnia that a vision of what we look ahead to. And it talks about the lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and says, As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover in the title page. Now they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Do you believe that? Do Do you actually believe that that's true of eternity? Or when you think of eternity, is it just some weird, ethereal place that just isn't here? Do you actually believe that that it's the place that is the real story, that this is just the cover and title page preparing us for it, and when we get there, it's the story that goes on forever and ever, which no one has read, in which everything, every chapter, and every day, every moment is better than the one that preceded it? Because... If you don't believe that, and you don't believe that that's secured for us in Christ, then then we have nowhere to turn when we experience death of somebody that we love. But if you believe that, if you believe that we actually have a future, and this is why Paul calls it our blessed hope, then what could happen in your life now that would knock you so off kilter that you wouldn't be able to turn with hope for eternity? See, this is the, there is no amount of internal self-discovery or a journey of self-discovery that you can go on that will prepare you for death and suffering with confidence and hope. Because there is nothing within us that can cope with that. But thank God that we've got a bigger story that we're a part of. This is the good, this is why we call the gospel good news, because our past is not just about who we are, but whose we are. Our future is about Jesus taking us home to glory, and so while we wait in the present now, we, we, can, we will do all we can to join Jesus in his work, and in saving others, and in giving people hope, and giving our lives for the good of this world, and to push back the evil designs of the devil that destroys people's lives, but, but when you know the good news, then no matter what we face, no, ba- no matter how bad it hurts, and how much we can't answer the questions that come into our heads and our hearts, then there is a reality that we can enter into the deepest and darkest valleys with the confidence that it's God who will guide us through the valley of the shadow of death and Jesus himself whose voice we will hear is our good shepherd so that no matter what we face, we can come together and in the midst of sorrow still find reason for dancing and feasting and laughter and joying that we are a part of a story that goes on forever. This is why Paul says, Titus, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Pastor Tony Evans said, Paul gave Titus some serious marching orders, because the work of ministry is not for the faint of heart, it's to be exercised with loving but firm kingdom authority. But these commands come to every one of us who is a follower of Jesus today to declare these things, exhort these things, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Because if we, if you're not a Christian, you need to know this is what the gospel is all about, that in our past, we need all the help we can get because we are lawless on our own. But God came, the grace of God appeared, and in Christ, we are redeemed. Our present is that we are waiting and working and longing for the return of Jesus, not just as some glib christianese religious trite thing to say when we say come lord jesus maranatha what we are saying is i can't take it anymore but i have hope that it's only going to get better that the best that the worst thing we will ever experience is going to be experienced in this life because it's because he will wipe away every tear from my eyes and so that means that our present is hard And we work and we wait, wondering if our lives will amount to anything or have any lasting meaning. But we need to know that in Christ, our past is rooted in God taking on flesh. Grace appeared in Christ if we turn in belief and repentance. And our future is secure. We have hope for God's presence forever. And that tells us that what we do now matters. What we say now matters The way we live our lives now matters because we aren't just oiling the wheels of a cart that's going off a cliff. We are investing our lives into a story that will extend into eternity. So this is what we're about. The church is God's hope for eternity. The church is God's family and the church exists to declare good news and hope. This is why we get together. And let's never lose sight of what our story is and, how our, and what our place is in the story God is writing. Let's pray. Um, Father, I pray right now that you would help us in this. I, there, every one of us here is dealing with something different. For some of us, it's hard to believe the past, that, that you really have redeemed us in Christ. And I pray that you would help them to ask the hard questions, to do the exploration and to come to a settled confidence that Jesus is God in flesh who died in our place for us and to redeem us from our lawlessness. He was raised from death to life and that we have a rooted reality in him. For some here, Lord, they're struggling with the present, and caught up in a Christianity that seems kind of empty and hollow, because they they believe what happened in the past and understand the facts of the gospel, and they believe that there's something in implications for eternity, but they're not seeing how it works itself out now as we wait and that life is a training program. And so they're looking for fulfillment and fullness in things that are outside of Jesus. And I pray that you would help them to realize that all of that is empty and that our only satisfaction will come in him. And for others here today, Lord, I'm, they've forgotten their future And so the suffering around us and in our lives is too much to handle. It's too much to bear. I pray that you would stir by your spirit a sense of hope and assuredness and the restoration and renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Give us a vision for the vastness of your grandeur and glory so that it keeps life now in perspective, that these momentary trials are nothing in compare with the eternal weight of glory. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you would would move in our hearts to have a rootedness in the story of what you've done, especially in Christ, and help us to have boldness to declare it, to proclaim it, to exhort, to rebuke, and to let no one disregard us.